How many of you are Sherlock Holmes fans? Or at least familiar with the stories of the famous detective? I'm told that uh, Sherlock and his trusty friend and assistant, Dr. Watson, went off on a camping trip together one particular weekend. And after settling into their locale for the night, they enjoyed an unusually fine meal cooked over the campfire, a lovely bottle of wine, and then they turned in to get some sleep. Several hours later, Sherlock suddenly awoke, and he looked up, and what he saw concerned him, and he began to nudge his, his uh, good friend, Watson. Watson, he says, Watson, wake up, wake up. And Watson began to stir and finally turned and says, what is it, Sherlock, what is it? Watson, look up and tell me what you see. At which point, Watson, uh, struggling to wipe the sleep from his eyes, fixed his gaze above and said, well, Sherlock, I, I see millions of stars. What does that tell you, asks Sherlock. Now, this Time, Watson is wide awake, and he is not wanting to upset or actually wanting to please his brilliant mentor, and so Watson takes a moment to answer the question, and he studies the circumstances carefully. And then he says this. He says, Sherlock, astronomically, I see millions of galaxies and probably billions of planets out there. Astrologically, I, I see that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I, I deduce that it is approximately a quarter past three in the morning. Theologically, I perceive that God is great and we are very small. And meteorologically, I perceive that it is going to be a very fine day tomorrow. Why do you ask, Sherlock, asked Dr. Watson. What is it that you see? To which the famous detective responded, Watson, I see that someone has stolen our tent. <laughs> I tell you this little story because of my conviction that there are these times when we are a little bit like Watson in comparison to our master. Which is to say that there are these moments and seasons of life when we have a tendency to see things quite differently than that which our master focuses on and sees. Sometimes I think we get overly fixated on matters which, though are important, are not actually God's number one concern. And if truth be told, pastors like me are partly to blame for this. There are times when we as clergy people put a great deal of emphasis on what happens inside of our church buildings. 
you have probably heard more than a few of us through the years emphasizing the importance of joining in in public worship and, and urging you to volunteer in the Sunday school ministry and get plugged into the hospitality uh, program of our church and to, and to use your gifts in important ways right here as we put on the ministry of the church. We extol the virtues of praise and prayer and the proclamation of God's holy word and we instruct you on the virtue of Sabbath keeping and we might even supply donuts or other kinds of snacks just to get you into the building as an inducement to keep you coming here to this particular place. And that's not all bad. Oh, far from it. That in so many ways is so very, very good. Uh, Because what we do with Sundays, uh, how we spend our time when we're here in this particular place is immensely important. Observing the Sabbath and being part of the vital ministries of worship, growth, and service in a local church is one of the most important things that we do. It's crucial that we resource our local churches well because participating faithfully in them, encouraging others to experience that kind of blessing matters profoundly. But the question we must ask ourselves from time to time to to maintain the proper perspective about these things is why? Why are we here? What makes what we do on Sunday so significant? And I want to suggest to you today that, that the major reason why being here in this place on this day is so crucial is because by being here, it it prepares our hearts, it It refreshes our soul, it refines our minds so that we can go out and truly see and seize the other six days of the week in the way that God has in mind. And that's what I want to think about with you and my colleagues will also think about with you over these next uh, seven or eight weeks. I want to think about what it is we do with the other six. Now, if we go back and look carefully at the life and ministry and teaching of Jesus, it is striking how comparatively little he tended to focus on what we do with the Sabbath or what people do inside the the temple or the synagogue compared to what they do in the other spheres of life. Now, Jesus has strong teaching about the Sabbath and the value of that, but the preponderance of his instruction and, in fact, the conduct of his own ministry is all about what happens in the other spheres of life. The other six days of the week matter to Jesus. In fact, right at the very front of the Sermon on the Mount, which is the manifesto of our master, it is his uh, description of the vision of the kingdom of God and how we are to participate. Right there at the very front of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes it really clear what he wants our focus to be. Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. I see you, Jesus is saying, like salt sprinkled out upon the earth. I see you like that substance that brings out the best flavor, the highest possibilities of every single context that you enter, the way salt does for food. I see you like that substance that preserves the places that you go to against decay, the way salt preserves meat 
against rotting. I see you like that substance that melts ice and makes the way safer for those who follow after you. I I see you having that kind of impact. And I think if Jesus were standing here with us today, he would say, "I, I like to see you here in the salt shaker." I want you to come and make a place of of fellowship and worship like this a very important part of your rhythm because it's in this context that I am going to be able to to, uh, deepen in you the chemistry of my character, to instill in you the, the, the properties that will enable you to be this salt out in the world. In fact, he says later in this text, if the salt loses its saltiness, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Don't lose your saltiness. Don't lose the distinctive nature that you have because of your intimate communion with me. But what I truly and most deeply love, suggests Jesus in this text, is the effect that you can have when you are sprinkled out there the other six, on the other six days of the week. The first question I want to ask you today is, do you see yourself in this way? When you're measuring your own um, religious life, when you're thinking about your own spiritual performance, as it were, do you tend to to evaluate yourself more in terms of how many worship services you made, how many Bible studies you attended, what kind of religious engagements you had in that sense, or do you tend to evaluate it more in terms of the seasoning, preserving, way-making, ice-melting impact of your life when you're out there in the other fields you occupy? week in and week out. How do you evaluate your faithfulness? I think that what Jesus is trying to say to us is that we are not just ordinary people. You are not just Bob or Sue. You're not just a a teenager or an accountant or an employee or a resident of such and such a town. God has made you, in fact, God has called you to be the salt of the earth. to to play a role like salt in the earth. And then Jesus goes on and says, you are also the light of the world. I see you as light in this world. And what Christ is saying in effect there, I think, is I I perceive you as, as like waves of radiance moving out from this particular lighthouse that you're sitting in right now to to begin to impact the darkness that exists out in the world. I I see you as ones who help dispel the darkness, who help uh, illumine the pathway for other people so that they're not as inclined to, to trip or to run up against the rocks and the shoals of life. I see you as somebody who helps to make the way clear and helps other people find their way home. I see you like that, my people. I see you like particles of energy. You'll go out these doors in a little while and you'll be like these particles of energy bringing bringing power and light and potential to all of the places that you enter into. 
I see every classroom and every sports context and every job site and every social circle and every neighborhood and every civic organization that you go out into becoming better because you're there. Because you are the light of this world. And this interaction you've had with me here is is supercharging you to go out and to have this impact the other six days of the week. When you leave this building, are you thinking that's what I'm going to do? I have been recharged here, and I am ready to go, to go out there and be a radiant influence for God and his good through the next week. Will the people over the next week actually see that that is your passion, that is what you're about, or will they experience you as one of those people who sees faith as primarily a private matter. Faith is a personal matter. Truly, it's a personal matter, but Jesus tells us it's never intended to be a merely private matter, at least not the Christian faith. He goes on in the text and says, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it underneath a bowl. Instead, no, they put it up on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. So in the same way, says Jesus, please let your light shine. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds, experiencing the blessings that come with your presence in their environment, And thereby glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is the vision of Jesus. This is what Jesus sees. I meet um, monthly now with a a group of of individuals in a spiritual formation group that uh, is taking us through a variety of reflections on the nature of discipleship. And it's a fascinating group of people because the, um, it, it's enormously diverse. We come from a variety of different uh, family backgrounds and historical experiences. We're, uh, uh, we come from different vocational uh, spheres in a sense. One of the individuals has been a commodities trader and another one is a, uh, a technolo- technological CIO, a chief information officer. A further guy works in private equity. Another one works with food products. The fifth fellow is in healthcare. The last guy is in trucking and transportation and logistics. And each of us has a very different kind of personality. Some of them have seen some success in business. All of them have seen some struggles and losses in life. But what is really turning on this diverse group, what is really exciting all of us, is is the chance to start talking together about what our role in the mission of God is for this next season of our life. In fact, that's been the, the great question that's the centerpiece of our life together is, what, what is the role I have going forward in the mission of God in this world? Uh, in other words, What does God want me personally to do to advance his purposes in the various fields that I frequent? How can I be salt and light 
in these different environments I go into? How can I sow seeds of eternity and advance God's mission and, and help to expand his kingdom? What does that really look like for me in this next period of my life? And I want to ask you to ask yourself that question. I want to invite you to, to really sit with that question over these next weeks and see how God further shapes your answer to that. Gives you vision and clarity about how you're meant to answer that and live into that. Because if there's one thing we know for sure about God is that he is on a mission. Uh, he is not just satisfied and settled in one place. He is on a mission to transform this world. Bill Clark, when he visited with us this past summer, reminded us of a portion of that. Uh, Jesus shows us that God is out to save the spiritually lost. God is out to, to bring help to the materially least. God is out to lift up the socially last. God will travel from the blisses of heaven all the way to the agonies of the cross in order to redeem lives from the destructive effects of sin and to restore the full flourishing of his creatures and of his creation. Christ's last words to his disciples are not, please establish a club and occasionally remember me. Please establish a protected shrine and, and talk about me. Jesus' last words to his disciples are instead a challenge to them to take out into every corner of the earth the good news that the kingdom of God is near and invite every single person into the circle of the love of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In fact, the major reason, I will argue, that we come for the great communion that we have in worship and, and for the great community that we have with each other in fellowship here is in order to strengthen us and to inspire us for the great commission we have to fulfill the other six days of the week. Once again, is this the way you look at life? When you think about your journey as a disciple, is this, is this what you see? Jesus, I think, is our clear model on these things. We note in the scriptures that he enjoyed visiting the synagogue and the temple. He uh, liked to sit down with his small group of disciples and spend time with them. Uh, but Christ's primary passion, as we read the Gospels, is clearly the work of God out there. It's why we see him so much more frequently than in the synagogue out in the marketplace. Along the roadside, out in the farmer's field, uh, we see Jesus uh, eating dinner in the home of, of sinners or down by the docks. Even when Jesus is standing still, his eyes are constantly always scanning the horizon, looking for those who need the kingdom. And so he'll be in conversation with one group of people and he'll see a woman coming down towards the well. And, and, and he begins to get excited about the opportunity to interact with her. Or he'll be moving with the crowd through the city of Jericho. And he'll look up into the sycamore tree and he'll see this little guy. And in his face, he'll see the light of somebody ready to make a change. And he'll invite that little man down to share a meal with him. 
And he'll be traveling along on his way to some destination and he'll spot this, the blind person by the roadside and Jesus will stop for them and, and, and seek to understand the needs of that person. It's a consistent pattern of Jesus. One of the guys in the group that I mentioned to you a little bit earlier uh, really gets this. Uh, Dave said to us when we met last, you know, I've learned that living for the kingdom is all about learning to see. I've learned that living for the kingdom begins with really learning to see. To see people and to see situations the way I think God sees them. It's not about always going off to some far-off destination. It's really about opening my eyes and seeing the needs and the opportunities that are right there in those places that I'm going to every single day. That's what vocation is really about, he said. This is what I'm learning. So Jesus asks us, Watson, what do you see? What do you see? The Bible says that Jesus went through all the towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion upon them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, I hope you catch this last part because it's really poignant and powerful and, and important. Because what we're being told here is that Christ wishes that more people were seized with a passion to go out into the fields of this life and to help with the harvest of changing lives for good. That, that, that the heart of Jesus yearns to see more people seized with this compassion for the crowds, for the people of this world. And in fact, this is one of the very few specific prayer requests that Jesus ever gives to his disciples. There are only a few in the entire New Testament where Jesus says, pray for this. And this is it. He says, the harvest is plentiful. There's huge need. There's great opportunity for changed life out there. But the workers are few. We don't have enough of a labor force here. So ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the field. And as far as I can tell, it's the only prayer in the New Testament that Jesus asks us to offer and then to be the answer to as well. You can just picture the scene, can't you? He's with his disciples, and he, and he shares this prayer request. And he says, we need more workers. I wonder where we're going to get the workers. And you see them kind of looking at their feet, and realizing he means for them to be those workers. He calls us to be the ones who go out to reach people, to be the winsome witnesses, to be the faithful farmers that seek to cultivate the spiritual and material flourishing of other people. 
in the name of Jesus Christ. The question is, why would we do that? Why would you and why would I take this commission of Jesus even more seriously than we do now? Why take your mission out there even more intentionally in the days ahead? Well, let me offer you just a couple of reasons why. First, because it will please God. It will really please God. When Jesus tells stories about the final meeting up time, when we gather with him at the end of time and he is uh, performing the final accounting and wanting to know how we have lived our lives, none of the stories that he tells seem to suggest that what he's going to want to know about was which worship services we got to, which Bible studies we attended, which scripture we memorized, though all of those things are powerfully instrumental in, in helping equip us for what he will want to ask about. And, 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 the, and the text of so many of the parables suggests that what he's going to be interested in, as for example the parable of the talents reminds us, is how we took the, the things that he did in us or entrusted to us and multiplied them for the sake of his expanding kingdom. He's going to want to know names. He's going to want to celebrate the people that you personally and I personally were able to usher into the greater life of God's kingdom. The second reason to be the answer to Jesus' prayer request is because it will bless others. It will definitely bless other people. I, I was talking recently with uh, with one of my kids. All of the kids are out of the house now. And it's very, very lonely. The dog died last year. Amy and I are just there together. And, and uh, Amy was away on this particular occasion. And I thought, yeah, I just, you know, I just got to hear. So I began to call around to the kids. And I was in conversation with one of them. And, and, and it occurred to me, boy, he's really struggling with this. And I can see he's maybe made some mistakes here. And yet this is going well. And he's really excited about that. And he's developing in this wonderful way and my heart just surged towards this child I literally I took the phone away from my ear and I just <sighs> took a breath as I thought I love this kid I love all of my boys I want it to go so well for them I wish I could get closer to them to be able to support the best in them do you know that that is how God looks at you that he cherishes you like that, your heavenly father? Do you know that he feels that way about every person you're going to run into this week? Even the difficult and abrasive ones, you know that he's got that kind of heart for the people of this world, maybe especially for the problem children? He knows their stories. He knows their hurts. He understands their aspirations. He sees their possibilities. He wants to draw them into a deeper relationship with him. He wants to supply them with the power and the guidance that they need to overcome what is tripping them up, their besetting sins. He wants them to live into the full potential for which he made them. He wants them to spend all of eternity with him. And so he's sending someone to them. 
and it isn't me. And probably not too many pastors of this church. Because we'll never go to those places that you occupy every day. You are his plan. You are his plan to bless other people by drawing them closer to him and helping them flourish. The last reason why I think this this commitment to asking ourselves, what is our role? How do I live more intentionally into the mission of God? Is because it will become your life's greatest accomplishment and joy as you live more fully into it. Have you ever been through one of those periods of time where you think to yourself, do I really matter? (laughs) Does what I do every day really amount to a hill of beans? Does it really count in any way? And I know that if Jesus were standing here, he would say to you, yes, it does. Oh, yes. Every single step you take to try and live for me, to be salt, to be light, to be a force of blessing, to cultivate the lives of other people in my name, this matters infinitely more than you may appreciate. I will tell you that I I think there's nothing more fun and fulfilling than helping other people come to know God and God's good intentions for their life. If you promise not to tell any of the trustees this, I'll let you in on a secret. I would do what I do for free. (laughs) Seriously. Really. I mean, if we ran out of resources and they said, oh, Dan, I'm sorry, we can't pay you anymore, I would just go get a job someplace else and I would just keep doing the same things that I'm doing now, reaching out to people, trying to see them as God sees them, trying to come alongside them and help in any way I possibly could, trying to share the gospel message with people. Because I think it's the most fun and fulfilling thing to watch life change happen for people. And I think you're going to get to to eternity one day, and I think that the the rapturous joy of eternity is going to be able to, to catch a glimpse into all of the ways your life had this amazing ripple effect because you were intentional about being salt and light in these fields that you go out to every single day. And you'll see the faces of those you influenced in a marvelous way. So, let me try and bring this to a conclusion and land it for you. How can you work in the field of your weekday world in a way that brings an even greater harvest? How can you answer the call of Jesus more intentionally in the days ahead? I'm so glad you asked, because that's what we're going to be talking about over these next weeks together. We're going to look at eight essential practices for increasing your everyday influence. And the very first one is is an easy one. It's simply this. See the field. Watson, see. See the field. Start getting excited about the world that you're going out to these next six days, six days. We ought to put up signs at the edge of our parking lot that says, entering your mission field. 
um, start getting excited about the potential of the next six days of your life. Start surveying. Make a list of the specific environments you know you're going into and the kinds of people that you're going to likely meet and the sorts of issues that may be there in the lives of those particular people. And then before you get out of bed tomorrow morning and then the next morning, just pause for a moment and think about that day, that field unfolding in front of you. And, and, and say to God, Jesus, give me your eyes. Give me your heart for all of the people that I'm going to meet, for all of the needs and the opportunities that I'm going to encounter today out in the field. And if it's not already your pattern, start a daily practice. And, and add to that initial prayer the longer one. Pray the kingdom prayer, the one that you know so well that we offered earlier in our service today. Our God, our Father who art in heaven, let that prayer, really think about the words of that prayer and let it shape you and prepare you to go out and to be an agent of his kingdom. And if you feel downcast over the condition of that field to which you are going, and all of us sometimes look out at the fields of life, we think, gosh, it's, the situation's pretty bad out there. I'm not sure I can make any difference at all. Every time you get discouraged like that, remember this final story. A woman tells a story of driving home one day and stopping along her journey to home and going to a local park and sitting down and just for a little while watching a little league baseball game unfolding. And sitting there uh, in the bleachers, she had the chance to, to, to reach out and talk to one of the kids that was sitting along the player's bench. And she said to one of the boys, what's the score? And the little boy turned around and said, we're behind 14 to nothing. And he was smiling. And she says, I don't get it. You, you don't look very discouraged. Discouraged, the boy said with a puzzled look on his face. Why should I be discouraged? We haven't come up to bat yet. Think about that. What if this church, what if you and I haven't really yet gone out onto that field and fully done what we can do? I've got good news for you. Today is Sunday. There are six days left. It's a great day today, but tomorrow tomorrow we begin to win the game so have heart be of good courage hold fast to that which is good and go forth in hope as servants of the Lord who is already waiting for you out there in that field let's pray together Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done through each of us on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we go forth to forgive our debtors. 
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory every day of this week. Amen.